Intergalactic Crack. This is Arma Observatory and Planetarium's podcast. So we're back, Heather, for episode five. Yay, episode five. Yep, it's it's going great so far. I don't know about you, but all this talking about space and astronomy is really just making my mind buzz with so many questions and so many topics we could cover in the future. We're getting all the good feedback from people that are listening. So it's just, it's a really positive experience so far, Heather. What do you think? Yeah, it's been, it's been really lovely. I mean, like, I've always wanted to do sort of like a podcast and I never thought it would, like, I never thought it would happen. I never thought it would come true. But actually, we've put a lot of work into this. And you know what? It's been so enjoyable. It's been lovely talking to people, uh, well, through through the powers of the radio waves about um all things science like I mean our last episode about the International Space Station I mean that was just so much fun and I just can't wait to keep doing it and keep talking about the things that we like to talk about. Yep and just a reminder at the top here as always guys if you have topics you want us to cover questions you want us to answer or maybe to get an astronomer in to help answer as well just leave them wherever you find us, leave it in the comments, drop us an email, a message, a DM, whatever you want. So this episode, ladies and gentlemen listening, is going to be a very Heather-focused episode because <laughs> Heather has a passion for this topic and this topic is something that I am not so passionate about. The enthusiasm for me is just not there. Now, Heather, can you introduce this topic so everyone knows what we're talking about? Okay, so when Courtney and I were trying to think of things that we would like to talk about, I mentioned the word satellites to her. And not throwing you in it here, Courtney, you were kind of like, so what? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, satellites are cool. Just like bow ties are cool. And if you get that reference, huh, I love you. Um, But yeah, I think satellites are pretty awesome. And that's what I would like to talk about today. Now, are you ready? for me to try and convince you that satellites are cool? I would like to be convinced because to be honest, Heather, like in comparison to like the earth being flat, black mm-hmm. holes, this kind of thing, satellites sound like the more, you know, middle of the road, not super exciting thing to cover. So I'd be intrigued to see how you managed to make me super invested in them. Are you saying satellites are tame? I would go as far as to say that, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to eat my words. <laughs> <laughs> well, while they may not be as, you know, as exciting as like black holes and neutron star collisions and things like that, they are, I think, just very important. And like, you know, I always wonder where would we be without satellites? Now, in saying that, in doing my research for this episode, I, I proved myself wrong on a couple of things and I will elaborate on that when I get to it. So, so yes, um, I think the best place to start out when trying to convince you that satellites are cool is, again, history nerd at the very beginning. Um, so basically, I want to start by talking to you about Sputnik 1. You've heard of it, right? Oh, Sputnik. Mm. Oh, the Friends episode with Ross and the potato costume for Spudnik. Just... Exactly. He dressed as duty, whoever that is, but it's Spudnik. But this is how influential Sputnik 
is, you know, it's how inspirational it was as well as that, you know, it made its way into popular culture. So uh, basically Sputnik was the first artificial Earth satellite and uh, the Soviet Union launched it into an elliptical low Earth orbit back in 1957. Oh, wow. I know that long ago. It was, it was in October 1957. So I always wondered, well, how long was Sputnik up there? And actually, it was only it only orbited for three weeks before its batteries died. And I still think that's funny. It had batteries. Oh, a time before solar powered things. What? I, I know, right? And then it uh, orbited silently for another two months before it fell back into the atmosphere. So... Um, it wasn't really up there that long, but it was the first artificial satellite in low Earth orbit. Now, I will go on to talk about natural satellites, which are things like, you know, the moon. But I do want to talk more about man-made satellites, because whenever you say satellite and Sputnik, you think of like metallic man-made things like that. So Sputnik itself was actually, it was quite small. It was 58 centimeters in diameter and it was, you know, a polished metal sphere. It had like these four like antennae things. Yeah. It had these, Courtney's making hand gestures at me and it's, it's quite funny. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to guess 58 centimeters. That's just over half a meter. That's quite small. Isn't it? And then they have these like four antennae coming off of it as well. You know, it looked pretty alien and one thing I like about this as well is that Sputnik actually um inspired design in other areas oh tell me I know I will tell you more and this is where you're going to you're going to look at these things that I'm going to tell you about now in a, a whole new light because I'm going to talk to you about the Sputnik light oh so basically the Sputnik light it wasn't designed on a whim and it was heavily influenced by people's fascination with all things space during the 40s to the 60s and it was this guy called now I know I say this every time I want to say a name that is maybe not entirely Northern Irish or like uh, Gino Serfati he was an Italian modernist designer and basically he designed this light that was inspired by Sputnik so the original ones looked quite like the satellites themselves, but then over time they they changed. So it's like a, a ball in the middle with things, with arms radiating out and lights on the end of it. But that is how inspirational people find the space race. Yes, there was the bad, you know, Cold War connotations behind it, but good things came out of it too. Well, we landed people on the moon and all that, but... Uh, we got new designs and people started thinking outside the box. So Gino, he made this light and you can still buy these types of lights today. In fact, I may buy one myself because they're quite awesome looking because when I was doing the research into this, I saw all these lights and I was like, ooh, I might like that for my living room. But yeah, the Sputnik light is the design we still use today and it was inspired by Sputnik, the actual satellite. What do you think? You're telling me that the first satellite we sent up into space inspired interior design. Yep. Whoa. That's what I'm telling you. Pinterest mm-hmm. missed a trick with that one. They need to <laughs> need to point that out a little bit more. I know. It's just, it's it was something I remember coming upon it once, uh, maybe a year or so ago when you go down, you know, like a, a Wikipedia wormhole, that sort of thing. And uh, I remember coming across and thinking, oh, 
that's that's really fascinating. And I just thought I would mention it here because I still think that's that's pretty cool because as a museum enthusiast, I'm pretty sure I could go to a museum somewhere and you'd find like a Gino Sarfati original Sputnik light. Um, but since 1957, there's been about 8,900 satellites that have been launched by more than 40 countries. Oh my goodness, right. Mm-hmm. I know that 40 that's countries as well. You wouldn't think about that many countries being involved in space technology. You know, you normally think of the big players like the US, Canada, Japan, Russia, you know, the ESA. Like you wouldn't think about other smaller countries getting involved in that way. Exactly. But, you know, everyone, everyone wants to get a satellite up there because they help in so many ways. So just to give you a breakdown, um, now, the last sort of estimates that I could find were of 2018. So it has probably changed a little bit uh, since then, but there's some 5,000 satellites are remaining in orbit. But of these, only about 1,900 are operational. Um, the rest have just become space junk. Which is, in, which is an interesting topic in itself, but yeah, mm. um, roughly 63% of the operational satellites are in low Earth orbit. 6% are in like a medium Earth orbit. That's about 20,000 kilometers up roughly. Oh, is that uh, all? Oh, yeah, that's all. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then 29% are in a geostationary orbit which I will talk about in a little while, but it means that they're traveling at 36,000 kilometers. Or no, no, they're not traveling. They're at 36,000 kilometers up. And then the remaining 2% are in an elliptical orbit. Um, do you want to hazard a guess at which country has the most satellites? Hmm. It's between two for me. Mm-hmm. Part of me wants to say China. Yeah. However... Mm-hmm. Elon Musk is living in America currently and you know he loves sending up satellites just by himself. <laughs> yeah. Um hmm. I'll go US, but I have a feeling it's China. No, you're right. It is the United States. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, so they are in a significant lead in that they have like 859 satellites. <laughs> China is second with 250. Russia would be third with about 146. And then leading after that would be Japan has around 72, India 55, UK 52. And then all the other countries have a smattering of satellites. And all that has come from Sputnik. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the Russian effort in the space race is often overlooked because they didn't like, you know, put a man on the moon first but Mm. I mean they were the first to actually put something in orbit yeah exactly they went for it and look what happened as a result and then the rest of the stuff that I'm going to talk about you know I we wouldn't we wouldn't have you know Sputnik had never gone up you know um in regards just to Sputnik one little small um point about it is that officially there were three Sputniks um any Sputnik that came after that was actually um, people in the West tended to refer to Russian satellites, no matter what they were called, as Sputnik. So you might hear of Sputnik 4 or Sputnik 9 or something, but Russia had their own names, but the West just said, yep, Sputnik 9 and left it at that. Well, isn't it true that Sputnik actually means satellite in Russian? Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, it's an easy way to call it that. I mean, other people calling every Russian satellite Sputnik is kind of considerate of the language. So exactly. Know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the the origins, the the beginnings of satellites. Have I inspired you any yet? I want to know more. So that's not bad. That's good. Okay. Okay. I'm liking this. I've got a lot of pressure here, folks, to try and convince her. So the next thing I want to talk about is um, a thing that honestly has probably gotten a lot of people through lockdown. It's TV. Okay. So basically, a lot you wouldn't really... You couldn't really talk about satellites without talking about TV because basically if you have a satellite, if you have Sky or, you know, whatever other things are out there, Virgin and all there, you have to point your satellite dish to a certain area in the sky, don't you? Mm -hmm. And that's pointing at the geostationary satellite that is for that that TV, that for that thing, basically. So um let me just give you a little bit of an insight into it. Now, I, again, being the historian, I kind of wondered at certain things, but I'm going to, I, everyone talks about, you know, the first, one of the first big TV broadcasts being the Queen's coronation. That was in the 19, it was 1953. We're going to overlook that because that's, TV was still very young at that point. The first public satellite television signals from Europe to North America were relayed by the Telestar satellite over the Atlantic Ocean on the 23rd of July, 1962. That was sort of the first use of satellites for TV programming and TV signaling. The Telstar one was actually launched on top of a Thor Delta rocket in uh, July, uh, July 10th, 1962. And it successfully relayed through space the first television pictures, telephone calls as well, telegraphic images, and then provided that transatlantic television feed. So before that, that hadn't really been possible. And since then, TV satellites have just developed. And so you have these big companies like Sky. And for people who don't know what Sky is here in the UK, it's one of the big, you know, satellite TV providers. Um, You know, we wouldn't have that if we didn't have satellites. And so we wouldn't have, what is it, what, 900 stations of what can often be rubbish? <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for satellites or we wouldn't have that TV channel that just repeats Top Gear from six years ago over and over and over again. Yes. Here, but there's also TV, you know, stations that, you know, play repeats of Doctor Who. And so people are often told bow ties are cool. Yeah just like satellites are cool see that reference just went over my head because I'm not like a super nerd like Heather is but no disrespect (laughs) to the community of super nerds out there if I had a bow tie on right now I'd be sitting twiddling going bow ties are cool because they are (laughs) um yes I quite like Doctor Who too and without satellite tv I might not have been able to watch Doctor Who um so yeah so tv has it whether you want to admit it or not, it's an integral part of a lot of people's lives. And without satellites, we wouldn't have that. Now, geostationary satellites basically are positioned in one place and they they stay there and they basically follow the Earth's orbit around. They don't move. And that's why you have to point your satellite dish at that one spot. Now, 
Heather being a little bit, you know, wasn't too certain how television and stuff worked. I never knew that whenever you were pointing your satellite dish at something, you were actually pointing it at a genuine satellite. I don't know where I was pointing it. I don't no, know. To be fair, it's called a satellite dish, but no point did I think, ah, yes, it's shooting something up into space. Yeah. You know, it. you just, you don't consider earthly things being that way, that far away from me. It's just, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Exactly. Like these geostationary satellites are 36,000 kilometers above us. That doesn't register on any level to, with me. <laughs> I just had to point it north for some reason, but now I know the reason and it's satellites. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool that satellites bring us TV. That's not, mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing to know, Heather. Mm-hmm. Now, I also wanted to look into internet and satellites. And again, this is where Heather learned valuable lessons in that the internet <laughs> didn't, isn't always, never mind. The internet hasn't always been in space. In fact, it's not in space at all. It's at the bottom of the ocean. The internet <laughs> is in the ocean? Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Um, I thought, right, that... Um, all internet <laughs> people listening are probably going to think I'm being really silly here but I thought it was all in space in satellites already but in chatting with a friend they told me it was in cables in the ocean it's his like, friend okay. uh, a friend of the podcast Dr. Rock yes <laughs> and so if Dr. Rock says it it must be true Dr. Rock features in episode two of Intergalactic Crack. If anyone wants to check him out, he talks all about asteroids. Yes, exactly. Um, so then I wondered, well, hold on, what is what is Elon Musk doing? And that's this, that's where Starlink comes in and those 60-something satellites. So he wants to get the internet satellites into the sky, but there are issues in that, you know, these satellites might hinder observations because they're very bright and things like that. So to actually go in and talk about the ramifications of Starlink satellites and their pros and cons, it might actually take a separate episode altogether where we just discuss SpaceX. But there you go. I learned something new. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Rock, for that. Um, <laughs> cables at the bottom of the ocean are internet. But there is another thing. And this thing, I swear, I live by. If I didn't have this thing, I would probably be stuck in a field somewhere and it's GPS. Ah, Google Maps. Yes. Yes. And I got help from another friend of the podcast on this one, which is Dr. Connor. Um, He was telling me all about GPS and how I thought that um, GPS, you know, was owned by everybody. It's owned by the US military. Yes. So I had to do a little bit more digging into this. Now, before we dig into it fully, what Dr. Connor was able to tell me was that actually there are sort of like four main guidance systems. There's GPS, which is um, owned by the US. Mm -hmm. There's one, now I don't know if you say this all together, it's called GLONASS, G-L-O-N-A-S-S, that's owned by Russia. There's BDS and that's China. And then ESA has the Galileo system. Now, the Galileo system is going to be fully operational by the end of 2020. Well, that's that's what it says, but we all know how 2020 is going, so if it doesn't get up in 20, we're fine. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, Galileo will allow the European nations to have their own location system and not be reliant on the US or Russian military technology. So the GPS system itself, um, it has quite an interesting history. And again, it all goes back you know, to this Cold War stuff. Um, GPS, it has its origins in the Sputnik era where scientists were able to track um, the satellite with shifts in its radio signal known as the Doppler effect. Um, now, we'll probably talk about the Doppler effect in, in other episodes, so I won't go into it too much now. But basically, the United States Navy, um, they conducted satellite navigation experiments in the mid-60s to track U.S. submarines carrying nuclear missiles. You kind of don't want to, to lose, lose track of those. Yes. Um, so the original GPS system... It started out with six um, satellites sort of above the poles. And they were able to use those to help watch these quite dangerous submarines. Yeah. So then in the early 70s, um, the Department of Defense, again, we're all still in the US here, they wanted to ensure um, that there was a robust, stable navigation system Um that could be available. And so they embraced the ideas that the Navy scientists had. And so GPS is sort of, we know it started to be born. So the GPS system is 24 satellites um, and they came fully operational in 1993. Now, basically it's out of the goodness of their hearts <laughs> that they allow everyone to use the GPS system, but that could be taken away Yes, it sounds like a good idea that either we should have one that's like publicly owned by the entire human race mm. or that, you know, we have a bit of separation of who owns that kind of thing. So it's it's yeah. a good idea that ESA is doing their own so that we can, you know, have mm -hmm. our own and not be entirely reliant on the US military. Um yeah. I know it's I mean that that quite shocked me whenever I was told that and another thing is that you know obviously they give us the, they give you the GPS to within, I say it's like a three, say it's like a three meter accuracy, which that's quite good. Mm -hmm. But they have it, you know, for themselves at a much better accuracy, say to within one meter. Mm. So they don't give out all the goods. They give us some of the goods or a majority of the goods anyway. Um, but honestly though, forgetting all this stuff about the US military and whatever, Honestly, where would you be without Google Maps? Oh, probably somewhere in Cork. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's an excellent point, though, that we do rely on satellites to know where we are and we wouldn't be able to travel the way we do in our modern world without it. So definite yeah. point to Heather there. Satellites are indeed helpful in that regard. Mm -hmm. I'd never, ever, ever have to try and read a map again <laughs> I just have a little device that tells me turn left now <laughs> well it doesn't say now but you know what I mean uh yes so GPS we like it um and we will keep an eye out and tell everybody about you know the Galileo system as well and uh props to them calling it Galileo one of Heather's favorite ast astronomers <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so um there are are so many different types of satellite, right? Um, that I could I could sit here all night and just tell you about them. So you have the likes of Earth monitoring satellites, satellites that monitor the weather to help monitor like bushfires and things like that. Um, but 
You also have ones that I really love. It's the space satellites. So the ones that are way out there in space and my favorites are the ones that are telescopes, basically. So I'm wondering, Courtney, can you name any famous telescopes, satellites that are out in space? Well, my favorite is, of course, Hubble. Who, Who could overlook Hubble? 30 years of Hubble? Oh, yes. I mean, like it was, yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> it was launched in 1990, in April 1990. So I'm a month younger <laughs> than the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, wow. And I wouldn't be brought into existence for another five years. Oh, should be a bit. <laughs> um, well, Hubble is the one that everybody knows about. It is um, a NASA ESA thing. Um, and it was launched as I said the 24th of April 1990 and it was the first significant optical telescope to be placed in space. Now the benefits of putting a telescope into space is that it, it takes away the atmosphere. The atmosphere can cause so many problems. I mean radio telescopes don't really have that much of a problem but for other things like optical telescopes and even infrared and things you you want rid of that. So the best way to do that is to put it out in space. Um, It was named after Edwin Hubble, who was born in 1888 and died in 1953. He was an American astronomer and uh, basically he was the person who discovered that, you know, everything was moving away from us. I think that's right. Fairly important. Yes, very. So he he made very big discoveries. Um, And since the telescope was put into space, And since it started its mission, it has taken over a million observations. For anyone listening at home, I guarantee you nine out of 10 times, if you've looked at a really beautiful image of space, whether it's the Pillars of Heaven um, Mm. image that made the front uh, page of the New York Times when it came out, whether it's pictures of beautiful like galaxies and nebulae, and it's probably Hubble that took it. Um, Hubble has allowed us to peer into the corners of our universe that we wouldn't have been able to see. I'm a big fan of Hubble and I didn't even consider Hubble to be in the same remit as satellites. So excellent job pointing that out, Heather. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, as you said, it is just so, it's so inspirational because it's done so much and like it itself has a very interesting history, which again, would be a completely different episode that we could dedicate to that. I would um, love to do an episode on Hubble, absolutely. Oh, let's do that. Yeah. I think we should. You hear that, folks? We're going to do an episode on Hubble. Um, it does transmit uh, in the visible. It also transmits in the infrared and the UV. Uh, one of its most famous infrared images was it took um, an image of the Horsehead Nebula, um, yes. which we find in the Orion Nebula. And do look that up. It was like an anniversary picture it took. So that, you know... We love the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, Another very popular space telescope that actually a lot of um, even the general public have heard of, you know, even if you haven't really heard much about space satellites and telescopes, they sometimes know about the Kepler Space Telescope. Okay. Now, the Kepler Space Telescope, it's retired at this point, but... It was the one that was looking for Earth-type planets around other stars. Ah, 
exoplanets. Exoplanets. So it was launched by NASA to discover Earth-sized planets orbiting the other stars. It was named after the astronomer Johannes Kepler. Again, I love Kepler as much as I love Galileo. Great astronomer. Um, And the spacecraft, it was launched uh, in March 2009. And it went into an Earth-trailing heliocentric orbit. But basically, any observations that it made of like these Earth-sized planets, I feel (laughs) it always made the news. It was, it was everywhere. Even before I started in the planetarium, it was like, oh my gosh, Kepler's discovered Kepler planet B12. It's, it's the size of the earth. Well, that was its job. <laughs> but, you know, it found all these different things. And so people remember it because it was in the news quite a lot. It is exciting that essentially a satellite could be involved in the discovery of a new world. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And like, could it have potentially already found the the Earth-sized planet that does have life on it? We don't know because there's you're still analyzing the data that that thing took. Um, it was retired sadly in October 2018, but people Aww. are still talking about it, and they will talk about it for a long time because it made so many interesting discoveries. And you know, I know I'll keep talking about it to the, to people who come and visit us because it's something that piques the interest. Like, oh. Earth-sized planets? How many did they discover? Are they close to us? You know, there's so many questions you can answer there. So yeah, another one of my favorite space telescope satellites. Much love to it. Yes, that, that's a good one too. Yeah. You, I have to say you're really winning me over here. Oh, making you feel fuzzy inside for satellites. Yeah, the ones <laughs> that take pictures and help with the discovery of the galaxy. Yeah, the, it mm-hmm. does. Yeah. No, it's, it's really good. I don't see how you could top that, to be honest. Well, I can top that. Oh dear. Okay. Because, well, I can and I can't because we, you know, this next satellite that I'm going to talk about is one that we see all the time, but often people just disregard it because it's always there. Oh, sure, it's in the sky, and I think. Uh, it's nice and round and Courtney's face might resemble this object. <laughs> Do you know what it is yet? Would it be our lovely moon? It is the moon. <laughs> it is the moon, yeah. So um, basically it's a natural satellite with many sat- artificial, artificial, I said that quite dairy there, I think, many artificial satellites um, of which as well here at the ISS, our last episode is one. Okay. And if you want to hear more about that brilliant satellite, listen to that episode. But the moon is a natural satellite. It's one that we didn't have to put there. It made itself. Yes. I suppose, you know, even in the definition, all a satellite does, you know, it has to orbit our planet mm-hmm. or, or orbit a planet. So yeah. the the moon does fit into that definition. Now, it doesn't provide GPS or take pictures, but mm. it's our constant companion. It's always there. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we, again, we could dedicate a whole episode to just the moon. We've landed people on the moon and we have taken so many pictures of the moon. It's pr- other than, um, other than say maybe like the Aurora or something like that. It is probably one of the most picture photographed 
astronomical things ever because you just have to get your phone, get a pair of binoculars or a telescope, line it up properly and you can take a picture of the moon, no problem. You know, we, we've always seen it. It does a lot for us and helps control the tides. It has its beautiful phases. And I, I think one of my favorite phases, I don't know if you ever seen just like this tiny, tiny crescent sliver whether it's waxing or waning, it doesn't matter as long as it's really t- like very slight and you're just like, oh, the moon's peeking out. Oh, look. Yeah. That's, I, I love the moon. Now, the moon, we're still not entirely certain 100% how it got there. Um, but the most commonly accepted theory is like a Mars-sized object. I think they call it Thea, Tia, something like that, yeah. Um, it crashed into the Earth billions of years ago. And basically the leftover junk that that remained there started to be pulled in by gravity and started to form our moon. And sadly, it's not made of cheese. Kind of yes. wish it was half the time. <laughs> that is disappointing. Yes. Also, there's nothing inside the moon before anyone suggests yes. conspiracy theories. There's no hidden city inside the moon, which has been suggested on our astronauts blog before in entire seriousness. The moon is exciting and lovely enough without adding levels of conspiracy to it. Yeah, the moon is not hollow. The moon is not like an alien egg, like in a Doctor Who episode. Again, Doctor Who reference. But yeah, the the moon is what it is. It is a celestial object. It is a natural satellite going around our planet. Now, we only have one and it's a decent sized one as well. It's about 400,000 kilometers away from us, rounding it up. But other planets have their own moons, their own natural satellites. Now, would you know which planet has the most? I do, because we did a breaking news feature on it whenever the um, the news came out. So it used to be Jupiter because Jupiter had 79 but then Saturn came along. Yes. And it now has 82. 82. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Could you imagine if we had 82 moons around the Earth? Oh, the night sky would be so busy looking. It just, I I'd, wouldn't, I wouldn't fancy it. I do appreciate ours. I appreciate what we have. Wouldn't really fancy Saturn's situation now. Mm. It's a lot going on there. Even Jupiter with seventy nine, and like, and like even counting up the numbers of satellites that these two planets have. I mean, it's changed even in the past five years. In that, you know, we went from saying, "Oh, Jupiter is sixty seven to seventy nine, and then Saturn had sixty three to eighty two. It's like, it, and we had a, a mini moon for about uh, ten years there that we only discovered recently. We did. That's right. It was I mean, about the size of a car and it was so tiny that we couldn't see it until recently. And it's actually on its way leaving us now. So we had a mini moon for a decade that we didn't know about. Oh my word. I mean, like that is, t- see, this is why space is great. There's so many things that you just don't expect. Like here we had a mini moon. Did you know that? <laughs> um, so as well, um, some of these if you look at the individual moons of these planets, some of them are really, really interesting. And uh, one of my favorites uh, would be Io, which okay. is a moon of Jupiter. And it's like a little volcanic moon. It's like one of the Angry moon. Angry. It's like, it's just because it's being constantly bombarded by, you know, like 
Jupiter's gravity and it's being heated up and there's volcanoes and it's just like constantly angry. <laughs> That's why I like it. Um, then there's Europa again. I'm just going to name the Galilean moons because, you know, they're awesome. Uh, but there's Europa and that's a great one because it's basically an ice moon with loads of water in it. It's a water moon, basically. Um, Good news for us. You'd think, wouldn't you? I mean, do you think there could be alien fish in there? That would be fun. Now, if we discovered some alien fish, it turns out they're actually more intelligent than us and they plan <laughs> to enslave the human race, that would be an excellent end to 2020. It would. And that, you know, commenting tribute. Yeah, Comet Neowise predicted it in its ominous, ominous way. <laughs> um, so yeah, Europa is a good one. And like there, there is a lot of interest in it because of this water and, you know, could there be superheated vents in there that helps grow life? Then there's Ganymede and Callisto. Ganymede is one of the biggest moons in the solar system. And Callisto, I think, is one of the oldest as well. So, you know, these are moons that Galileo discovered in 1610. So another one of my favorite moons is Mimas. And Mimas belongs to Saturn. Now the reason, and the only reason I like this moon is because it looks like the Death Star. Oh, yes. It's really like if you Google Mimas, it'll come up and there'll be these comparison pictures with it and the Death Star from Star Wars. But actually it really really looks like it but it's basically because there's a big crater on it this massive huge crater there's other moons of saturn that are also very interesting like you have titan um it's another one that they're sort of looking at you know oh it's interesting there's like viscous liquid on there what's going on could there be life or they're not sure but you know titan's another one on the watch list there's also hyperion and hyperion looks like a sponge Okay. Yeah. My trypophobia would hate that, but continue. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you Google a picture of it? It's basically, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, basically, it, it looks like a sponge. It's like it hasn't formed properly. It, it does give me the creeps a little bit. So maybe it is that phobia you were talking about. But, you know, there are so many moons in the solar system. You could go through them all and you could find something interesting about them. Like, um, Charon, the moon, one of the moons of Pluto is like almost the same size as Pluto itself, you know, so that in itself is interesting. Mm -hmm. So these natural satellites have a lot going for them and they provide us with so much interest and intrigue. There's ones that, you know, could it have life on it? Why does it look weird like that? Oh my gosh, it's the Death Star. Oh, look, it's it's nice and old. And oh, look, there's our own moon. It is helping to control the tides and it's really important to us and it's beautiful as well. Wow, okay. So satellites are cool because they go up into space. They inspire mm -hmm. interior design. They provide us with TV, mm -hmm. GPS. Mm -hmm insights into space mm -hmm. and our moons are satellites too so really satellites are this amazing collection of things such a big broad topic mm -hmm. with so much to expand on you know there's a lot more to satellites than i originally thought heather 
Oh, and like if if we had unlimited time, you could talk about so much more. Like there's so many other missions that we could talk about, but ones going into space, like the Bepi Colombo mission, where they're sending satellites to orbit around Mercury. There's satellites orbiting around Mars. There's satellites orbiting around Jupiter. There's lots and lots of satellites are doing. And I wish we had more time, but you know, we might have to do a second episode. Who knows? Ooh. Ooh. If, if, if you guys want to hear more about satellites, let us know. If this episode has been one of your favorites, let us know as well. Because mm. this one has been really fun to do, Heather. Because, you know, as we are on the education team, we're the teachers. It's not very often that, like, I'm able to sit back and be educated on, like, a space topic. Normally, I'm the one doing it. So it's been really good um, hearing all your research on satellites, Heather. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. No problem. <laughs> So, um, yes, everyone, hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please consider subscribing already. Um, if you like the podcast, leave us a review wherever you find it. It helps us uh, in our rankings, helps other people discover us if there's interaction with it. And we want as many people as possible to know all about Arma Observatory and Planetarium's podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you need something? I think I might need some space. Do you need some space? I need some space. Let's go get some space. The Arma Observatory and Planetarium is a registered charity and part of the Northern Ireland Government Department for Communities. To find out more by AOP, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at Arma Planet, Instagram at Arma Planet, YouTube at Arma Observatory and Planetarium, or check out our website where we host our blog, Astronauts, www.arma.space.